about how your voice is holding up in the midst of a weird kind of atmosphere like this, I can assure you that you're just fine because mine cracked about seven or eight times at this 9 a.m. hour. I'm pretty sure I've outdone you in terms of horrible singing, so sing freely, sing loudly. Uh, If we haven't met, my name is Jamie, one of the pastors of our church. Thanks, as I say, week in and week out or have at least for the past few months for bringing the church into this live stream and onto this lawn. I'm the guy who gets the privilege most weeks of opening up the Bible as we come together. We're going to do that. In fact, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and crack it open to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. That's where we'll be this morning, the final chapter of this book of the Bible. Uh, As you're turning there, uh, as I've mentioned and I'll remind us this morning, uh, right up under the clickable link for lyrics is a clickable link for sermon slides. So if you go to our homepage and click on that digital connect guide, uh, you should see right there up under lyrics PDF, uh, a PDF for sermon slides. If if that's helpful to you to kind of track with what would normally be on the screen behind me if we were in our auditorium right now, if you're a visual learner, uh, please take advantage of that. Uh, right up under that link on the Digital Connect Guide, we've actually added two more links that if you're a newcomer, we now have uh, a digital connect card that you can fill out. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, allow us space to engage with you a little bit about who we are as a church and, and where we're going as a church. And under that link is a sign up for community groups. So you don't have to do that, that thing of going to info at crosspointptc.com and blasting some general email out into the abyss, but rather uh, you, you have a little bit more accessible links to onboard as a newcomer or as someone who might be interested in a community group, which by the way, we are launching those two weeks from today. Uh, I sent out an email, uh, two of them this past week, inviting you into a survey about community groups as we get ready to launch in the midst of all the challenges associated with COVID-19, trying to get an idea of what it might look like for us to do that. We've got some options on the table there. If you haven't filled out that survey yet, I haven't sent the results of that to group leaders yet. So uh, if you do that between now and noon, your results will, will make it to your group leader. If you didn't get that email, please find my email address on the website and let me know and I'll get that survey to you and make sure that you're added to our database. Let me, uh, let me go ahead and pray for us because uh, we got a little bit of ground to cover this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this morning desperate in need of a mighty work of your Holy Spirit that we might examine ourselves in, in the sea of nominal Christianity that surrounds us and see what you long for us to see. Pray that you would help those of us who are in Christ to rejoice this morning over the the fruit of the gospel in our lives and to run to you, Jesus, and coming face to face with any indwelling sin that, that we might walk away filled with hope in light of our time in the scriptures this morning. In addition, I pray that you would save lost sinners, Lord, drawing them to yourself to the, the praise of your glorious grace. I invite you to attend the preaching of your word in power now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we're down to the final two sermons in this incredible sermon series, this journey through the book of 2 Corinthians that we began the first Sunday in January, I believe, if memory serves me correctly. We off-boarded for a couple of months there and got back on track, and, and now we're coming to the end of this, this thing. Arguably, the, the most emotional of Paul's letters as we've seen not only throughout the course of this series, but in concentrated form these past few weeks, the the final section of this letter, 
filled with with laughable sarcasm and irony as Paul takes the better part of the last four chapters to address his opponents, assuming the, the role of a fool not only in order to expose the foolishness and lies of, of those having resisted his authority over the church, but, but also to preserve the gospel itself. As Paul looks out on this church being tempted to veer away, to use Paul's language, from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ through the, the teaching of false apostles masquerading in sheep's clothing, those seeking to destroy the work of the gospel in the name of the gospel, those looking to lure people to another Jesus in the name of Jesus. And so Paul says in chapter 13, verse one, he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, so here we, we get Paul's declaration that he's coming to the city of Corinth a third time. The first was when he planted the church going back to Acts chapter 18, where he spent roughly two years evangelizing unbelievers and discipling new Christians. The second being the, the painful visit on the way to Macedonia, during which many openly rebelled against him, calling his apostleship into question. We saw that earlier in this letter. As Paul prepares for his third visit to the, the church in Corinth, he communicates something of a courtroom imagery as he uses the language of evidence. And, and witnesses in setting up his return to the city. It's a, it's a kind of imagery that really works both ways. On the one hand, there was this belief that, that Paul had been portraying himself as a man of integrity, a man willing to make tents for a living, all the while taking money from the offerings that he was collecting and, and padding his pockets selfishly. Something that, that Paul already addressed back in chapter 8 where he made clear that he surrounded himself with trustworthy brothers in traveling with any sort of monetary donations as a way of ensuring that, that all was seen as above reproach so as not to create any sort of opportunity for, for anyone to disgrace the gospel. Going back to last week, Paul sought to set the record straight once for all, declaring that his aim was to win the Corinthians over, not their money, not their property. Chapter 12, verse 14, for I seek not what is yours, but you. I'm not after the, the grasp of your possessions, Paul says, I'm after the good of your souls. Paul declares that, that any sort of accusation of a lack of integrity on his part it's going to require the evidence of two or three witnesses when he returns to the city of Corinth, which harkens back to, to an Old Testament legal requirement for accepting evidence in a court of law. If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19, verse 15, it says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Something that, that Paul brings to bear in his writing to Timothy as it pertains to eldership for the church, where he says in 1 Timothy 5, 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In, in one sense, Paul is saying to his opponents, prove it. Prove that I'm not above reproach. Bring the, the eyewitnesses and the evidence before the church, which Paul knows that they're absolutely incapable of doing because his entire life and ministry since his conversion has been one of integrity. On the other hand, Paul knows that 
he himself has all the evidence that he needs in order to bring an indictment upon those having resisted his authority over the church. These super apostles, those who are fleecing the sheep, you might say, and leading them astray. Some scholars uh, even go so far as to say that, that this third visit acts as Paul's third witness against his opponents in Corinth with his first two visits or perhaps even his previous letters being the first and second witnesses. He says in verse two, I warned those who, who sinned before and all the others and I warned them now while absent as I did when present on my second visit that, that if I come again, I will not spare them since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. Again, going, going back to last week, Paul fears that, that he might not find the rebellious minority in Corinth as he hopes to, but rather living in unrepentant sin and that they might not find Paul as they hope to, but rather exercising judgment on his next visit in the name of Jesus. Paul's opponents, we've seen this before in this series, they were, they were so off in their thinking that they didn't see Paul's meekness and gentleness as proof of Jesus speaking in him. They wanted to see power. They wanted to see triumphalism, not realizing exactly what they were asking for. And so Paul, in this statement filled with irony, he declares that, that they're gonna get what's coming to them when he shows up on the scene and exercises judgment putting on full display the authority and power of the resurrected Jesus. He says at the end of verse three, he is not weak, Jesus, in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Paul, Paul here likens himself to Jesus in both the weakness of his crucifixion and the power of his resurrection. Jesus was crucified in weakness, having set aside the privilege of divine glory, Philippians 2, taking on the form of a servant that he might die the most shameful of deaths on behalf of shame-deserving, death-deserving sinners like you and me. In reality, we know because Paul says it in the previous letter that Christ crucified is the power of God, right? 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Or how about a few verses later, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 through 24, where Paul says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, here it is, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That Christ crucified, it's a declaration that the weakness of God is stronger than men. The very death of Christ being where the death of death itself was inaugurated. I love the way Athanasius puts it in his great work on the incarnation. He says this, he says, Jesus, he accepted and bore upon the cross a death inflicted by others and those others, his special enemies, a death which to them was supremely terrible and by no means to be faced. And he did this, Jesus did, in order that by destroying even this death, he might himself be believed to be the life and the power of death be recognized as finally annulled. A marvelous and mighty paradox has thus occurred, he says, for the death which they thought to inflict on him as dishonor and disgrace, as weakness, it has become the glorious monument to death's defeat. 
That's the beauty of the gospel, the upside down nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've seen it throughout this letter, right? We've seen Paul continually boast in his weakness for the sake of Christ over and over and over again as this shining example of Jesus' sufficient grace made perfect in weakness. Not to overdo it. You've seen these verses over and over again now in this series. But 2 Corinthians 1, 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, weakness, But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead, power. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, weakness, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Or how about 2 Corinthians 12, 8, and 9? Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, this thorn in the flesh, Paul says, that it should leave me. But he, Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This follow-up letter to the church in Corinth, it's loaded with passages like these. We can just read scripture and, and call it a sermon. It's so filled with passages like these. All declaring the sufficiency of God's grace and power in the midst of weakness and suffering. A power that, that Paul fully expects to be present in his return to Corinth to deal with those unwilling to repent. So that Paul not only shares in the weakness of Jesus's crucifixion, but also the power of Jesus's resurrection. He says in Ephesians 1 verse 18 through 20, he says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glory, the glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the, here it is, immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul anticipates uh, whatever it takes kind of authoritative action in his return to the city of Corinth. Even if whatever it takes is removing someone from the church or delivering someone to Satan, as was the case in 1 Corinthians 5. Don't have time to unpack that one. Crazy scene in Corinth. Go back to the prequel, the beautiful mess series. You can engage 1 Corinthians 5. That sermon uh, may blow your mind. Paul's return, suffice it to say, It'll come for some in the form of a fragrance from death to death, to use the language of chapter two, verse 16. Going back to chapter two, Satan has his designs, his schemes. We know this. On the one hand, the devil loves unrepentant sin and will do everything in his power to keep the church from exercising church discipline. On the other hand, the devil hates forgiveness and Christian love and will do everything in his power to keep Jesus's church from wrapping their arms around repentant sinners so that we've been outwitted by Satan if we choose to ignore unrepentant sin on the one hand, compromising the corporate witness of the church and the integrity of the gospel. And we've been outwitted by Satan if we choose not to forgive, comfort and love repentant sinners, sowing division and discord in the church in the process. As Paul says back in chapter five, we're called to be ambassadors of reconciliation. And that involves both the truth necessary to confront unrepentant sin and the grace necessary to restore repentant sinners. Here we see Paul confronting unrepentant sin, which is a response and expression of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. He says in verse five, some of the most sobering words in all of scripture. He says, 
to a church, an expression of the bride of Christ. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Right, Paul ironically calls those demanding proof of his apostleship to give proof of their Christianity, the genuineness of their faith. To use Paul's language, the question of whether or not Jesus Christ is in them. One of the most glorious, miraculous verses in all of the Bible, Colossians 1, 27. Paul says, to them, to the saints, to Christians, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What mystery, you might ask? The mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Unbelievable. The presence of Christ in the lives of his people, a presence that indicates that we belong to Jesus. An abiding relationship with him, evidenced in the way we live our very lives. As Jesus so famously said in John 15, five, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, fruit of the spirit, Think about it. The the fruit of love is produced as we abide in Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. The fruit of joy is produced as we abide in Christ whose joy becomes our joy. The fruit of peace is produced as we abide in Christ who made peace by the blood of his cross. And on and on we could go down the list, right? I would ask this morning, is Christ in you? It's a question I have to ask to be faithful to this text. Is Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory? Is there fruit bearing evidence of an abiding relationship with the vine? Human race has an incredible capacity for self-delusion. And that's particularly true in the, the American South. Nowhere is that delusion more perfectly demonstrated than in the lives of thousands of evangelicals who are not born again. D.A. Carson in his commentary, he says, it is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, but it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. Any other view of grace cheapens grace and turns it into something unrecognizable. Cheap grace, he says, preaches forgiveness without repentance church membership without rigorous church discipline, discipleship without obedience, blessing without persecution, joy without righteousness, results without obedience. In the entire history of the church, he asks, has there ever been another generation with so many nominal Christians and so few real ones? And where nominal Christianity is compounded by spectacular profession, It is especially likely, he says, to manufacture its own false assurance. That not everyone whose parents are Christians who grew up in the church will enter the kingdom. Not everyone who's read a systematic theology book from cover to cover or led a Bible study will enter the kingdom. 
said this before in a previous sermon series, the sobering reality is that there will be people in heaven who will surprise us by their presence and there will not be people in heaven who will surprise us by their absence. An old quote that I've shared prior, John Newton says very soberingly, if I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had thought to meet there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful expression of poverty of spirit, something absent in the mind of, of, and hearts of Paul's opponents. They don't have that. This, this posture of humility that declares wonder of wonders that I'm a Christian. I should be in hell right now. I mean, my goodness, if we sat and soaked in that reality, how that would shape and reorient us in the midst of, of all of the pandemic and race-related issues that are surrounding us right now. I should be in hell right now. Everything's gravy. To, to quote Carson elsewhere, he says, there are millions of professing believers in North America today who at some point entered into a shallow commitment to Christianity, but who, if pushed, and my goodness, if many of us haven't been pushed these last four or five months, he says, but who, if pushed, would be forced to admit they do not love holiness, they do not pray, they do not hate sin, they do not walk humbly with God. They stand, he says, in the same danger as the Corinthians. And Paul's warning applies to them no less than to the Corinthian readers of his, this epistle. We're, we're meant to ask ourselves as we sit with a passage like this, are my beliefs formed and shaped by the scriptures? the words of the prophets and the apostles that find their ultimate yes in Jesus Christ? Or am I running to other wells, trusting in other, other wells in the midst of this moment in which we find ourselves? We're meant to ask ourselves, does my sin leave me broken and contrite before the Lord, running to Jesus as my only hope? As Charles Spurgeon once said, the rock of presumption and the siren song of self-confidence entice many. Many have been lost and are wailing at their everlasting ruin. Their loss, he says, is to be traced to nothing more than that they never examine themselves to discover whether they were in the faith. So that I would say, if you sense in this moment of self-examination that you're not truly a Christian, and I, I, I believe God is doing some of that right now. We were talking in our prayer time before this service that, that there's likely to be a theology of a remnant yet again on the other side of 2020, a smaller version of the church and perhaps a, a purer version of the church. If you sense in this moment of self-examination, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I'm a good church-going person. Maybe I'm good at checking the boxes of nominal cultural Christianity. I would just run with you, with you, hand in hand, back to verse four and say to you, Jesus was crucified in weakness on behalf of shame-deserving, death-deserving sinners like you and me, making a way where there was no way that we could be brought into right standing with a holy God. I invite you to, to turn to him in faith, to put your trust in him as savior, as Lord, that you might know the joy and peace of an abiding relationship with him, that you might know the riches, Colossians 1, of the glory of the mystery of Jesus Christ in you. 
fall at his feet now. Cry out to him. Save me from my sins, Jesus. You're my king. You're my hope. And if you are a Christian, self-examination, it's an exercise in wisdom. It's not in opposition to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Otherwise, the apostle Paul would have contradicted himself elsewhere in scripture. Passages like 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. Evidenced in the life of the apostle Paul himself, he says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, Paul says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I mean, Paul was was willing to look in the mirror. He was willing to examine himself, lest he should be disqualified. How much more should we be willing to, to do the same? I'm reminded of of the warning passages in the book of Hebrews for those of you who were around for that series, particularly the the danger of spiritual drift in chapter two, meant to remind us of our desperate need for Jesus, our only sufficient bearing, our only sufficient anchor in a sea that that would swallow us otherwise. I really love the way the the Gospel Transformation Bible puts it because it attempts to capture much of what we've seen throughout this series says this, because we are prone to sin, it is our responsibility regularly to examine ourselves for evidence that the gospel is working itself out in our lives. Am I experiencing and sharing the comfort of Christ in affliction? Going back to chapter one, verses three through 11. Is the forgiveness I've experienced leading me to forgive others? Going back to chapter two, verses one through 11. Are the permanent promises of God more important to me than momentary afflictions? Chapter four, verses seven through 18. Are my affections for other Christians restricted by my sin? Chapter six, verses one through 13. Am I eager to give sacrificially in response to Christ becoming poor for my sake? Chapter eight, verses one through 15. Does the one husband who gave his life for me hold preeminence over all other suitors, chapter 11, verses one through six. To the extent that we see the fruit of the gospel in our lives, we ought to rejoice, this commentary says, when we spot sin in our lives, it is to a self-sacrificing God of love and peace that we can freely run. For Christ was crucified for us. This is the heart of the gospel. So that I would say, may, may we never stop running to Jesus as the author of Hebrews would call us, the bearing, the anchor of our hope, the only one in whom we're capable of bearing any sort of God-glorifying fruit as an outworking of our abiding in him. Paul closes out this morning's passage, verses seven through 10. He says, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, Paul says, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. The seeming failure 
on Paul's part. Some scholars believe perhaps he's referring specifically to his change of plans going back to chapter one. If you recall, Paul uh, decided not to pay the church in Corinth a second visit, sending them a letter instead so that their response was then to accuse him of being unreliable or perhaps even worse, manipulative, strong in words, weak in presence, as they've said before, as Paul said before in this letter, their perception of him, which other scholars believe maybe more broadly is what Paul means when he, when he talks about this seeming failure, the failure to appear strong, which for some was seen as disqualifying. A true apostle, according to, to his opponents, being one who exerts his power, showing himself mighty in presence. Paul's response here, I love this, It's a very pastoral Christian response. It's basically to say, I'm happy to continue to appear weak in not having to exercise authority and judgment on you. I just want you restored to the Lord. I just want you built up in Christ. I just want you following Jesus. It's it's something similar to what he said back in chapter 11, verse 2 where he said, for I feel a a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. I mean, Paul's essentially saying, I want my return to Corinth to be something of a precursor of the return of the king that I might find you ready like a bride on her wedding day. In light of that, this is what I would say for us as a church. My prayer is that that the picture of the return of Christ would awaken our hearts to to the kind of response that Paul hoped for in the hearts of his own hearers. That like the apostle Paul to the city of Corinth, Jesus will return. And for those of us who are in Christ, it'll be the, the greatest of happily ever afters, unlike anything that's ever been written in the greatest of fiction novels. May that, may that drive us to to fight the good fight of faith, 2 Timothy 4, to finish the race, knowing that that there is laid up for us this crown of righteousness, which Jesus Christ himself, the hope of glory, will award to us on that day, we, to use Paul's language, who have loved his appearing. And the church said, as we say often around here, amen, come Lord Jesus. He's our great hope on the other side of all this craziness and in the craziness too. May we not cease, may, may we never cease to look at him, our, our bearing and our anchor and to trust and hope and run to him over and over and over and over again. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship this glorious God, this triune God. We'll look at the, the beauty of of. Trinitarian doctrine next week as Paul closes with this glorious benediction. But we don't have to wait till next week to worship Father, Son, and Spirit. We're gonna do that through our collective voices as we sing, whether you be joining in person from this lawn to do so or from your home right now via live stream. Just invite you to to pour out your voices to this God of creation and redemption. There'll also be an opportunity to receive of communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. Uh, we take the, the bread representing the, the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. If you didn't pick up one of these on the way to your seat, um, we have these packaged communion uh, cups that are on the tables to my left and right. Anytime between now and the end of the service, we've got a couple songs 
that will take place before the service is over. You're welcome to go to one of those tables and grab one of these cups and uh, receive of the Lord's Supper. As you do, I just invite you to, to pause for a moment and to think about the, the wonder of what Jesus has done for you to make this miracle not only a possibility, but a reality, the hope of glory, Christ in you, that you have an abiding relationship with the living God because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you.